Hey everybody, it's Kate. Welcome back to the Voice Above podcast. Today, we will be talking about the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, known as NATO, and their role in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine that has been escalating for the past two months. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with NATO, it was created in 1949 by the U.S., Canada, and 10 Western European nations for the purpose of collective defense and for the preservation of peace, and has continued as an alliance since then. Our special guest for this episode is Robert Baines, the President and CEO of the NATO Association of Canada. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Since this conflict began, it looks like you've been rather busy. Just a few weeks ago, you were on the agenda with Steve Pakin, discussing whether there was potential for a war to break out in Ukraine, and the situation has developed quite a bit from then. Being the head of the NATO Association of Canada, can you let our listeners know a bit more about what you and your organization do, and if the crisis has had any effects on your organization? Certainly it has, Kate, and... uh... It's, it's really a, an amazing job to have, uh, obviously, right now, as, as you point out. But more generally, uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is a very uh, simple in theory. Uh, it's very complex in practice, as you might imagine. But the idea was created at the end of the Second World War um, that we wanted to make sure that um, military escalation was, was no longer something that was accepted. Uh, in the 30s, most of you will know that Europe was carved up one piece at a time by Germany uh, using a, a number of different pretexts. Uh, and most of the European allies, uh, although they were friends of these countries that were being slowly invaded and taken over, they did not want to start a war because they were thinking of the horrors of the First World War. Uh, their populations were very much against militarism. They wanted to de-escalate. They wanted to uh, uh, have most of their countries uh, forswear against arms. Uh, and, and that is sensible. That is a logical thing to want to do. Uh, who wouldn't want to put our um, budgets towards education, social services, uh, health? Um, the only problem was that we didn't count on power-hungry maniacs uh, like Mr. Hitler at that time. Uh, so at the end of the Second World War, we decided that we wouldn't let anybody ever again bully uh, sovereign nations. Um, so at the end of the Second World War in 1949, 12 nations, including Canada, got together to say a very simple thing, that an attack against one of us will be considered as an attack against all of us. Uh, therefore, we will come to the aid of our alliance, our friends. We will train to make sure we're capable of showing uh, deterrence against a possible attack, which uh, the theory is will stop an attack. Once you can show a bully that if they start messing with you, you will hit back with enough force to make them think twice, that is the best way that we have understood uh, to keep conflict from the North Atlantic area. Um, it was it was very hard won information, but I think most people, upon reflection, will realize that that is one of the best ways to stop conflict uh, by making sure that the person who thinks they might be able to get away with uh, something uh, knows that they won't be able to get away, and that's exactly the the kind of tipping point we're at in Europe. 
um, of course, in this case, made much more complex by the fact that Ukraine is not a member of NATO and therefore is not uh, under that uh, attack against one as an attack against all theory. Uh, so we could get into that if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So um, at the NATO Association of Canada, um, what do uh, you do to, I guess, um, promote uh, NATO or um, talk about NATO uh, in, in the country? Of course, that was part of your first question. Um, so we, uh, we have the, the opportunity to usually be the first people to inform Canadians about NATO. We don't have much education in our high schools about NATO. Um, most people uh, haven't heard NATO in the news until this past month, um, uh, certainly since the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, and the end of the Cold mm -hmm. War. So we've been trying to bring NATO and an understanding of NATO and its goal for peace and security through strength to the Canadian public through events. Uh, we often put on lots of cultural events trying to highlight the fruits of peace, which a lot of Canadians just don't think about. Most Canadians think that peace and security is the default uh, position of society, when in reality, it has taken generations of work to get where we are uh, and to maintain that peace and security. And so we just try to, uh, at a very general level, draw attention to that fact and that NATO is, is one piece of a larger puzzle, uh, the rules-based international order, which is trying since the end of the Second World War to maintain a multilateral, uh, a non-zero-sum collaborative effort to maintain peace and security throughout the globe, uh, specifically for NATO, the North Atlantic area. But uh, once you can create one pocket of peace and security, that can spread uh, elsewhere. Amazing. Yeah, that's it's really important to um, inform Canadians uh, about NATO because, yeah, I know uh, for one that in my education, it really has just sort of been skimmed over. But it's great that uh, you guys do bring that to a broader audience. Um, so to get to the uh, the meat and potatoes of uh, this episode today, um, Russia's military buildup on its border with Ukraine has been drawing international attention for over two months now, with countries across Europe and North America announcing to their citizens that they should leave Ukraine immediately if they're still there due to the impending threat of a Russian invasion. So um, as you were mentioning, NATO has been repeatedly discussed over the last few months regarding this conflict. So um, you've sort of already gone over uh, it, but for listeners that aren't very familiar with NATO's current role in Europe, can you let us know what NATO is doing there now? Sure. So it's, it's, uh, it's been, as you'd imagine, a, a long evolution of what NATO is doing. Um, the, the NATO treaty itself um, essentially identifies no quote-unquote enemy. There is nobody against whom the treaty is set. Uh, in reality, of course, uh, it used to be the USSR, uh, formerly the, uh, the Soviet Socialist Republic. Uh, and now it is essentially NATO is protecting its members against anybody who is threatening. Uh, and in, in this case, that has been a, over the past, say, 12, uh, 14 years, uh, increasingly, it unfortunately has been Russia. Um, I'm, I'm mentioning sp uh, specifically uh, cyber attacks, uh, the uh, invasion of Georgia in 2008, of course Crimea in 2014. Uh, it has been a, a growing uh, 
history of aggression from the Russian side, which is most unfortunate. Uh, NATO has, has really taken a stance where it's tried to undertake both uh, defense and deterrence. So the original idea of NATO by, by showing we can take care of ourselves, do not pick a fight with us, uh, and we can show that we can take care of ourselves, uh, but at the same time maintaining dialogue with Russia. Um, NATO created something called the NATO-Russia Council and has continued to try to parlay uh, discussions. Um, the, uh, the Russian um, discussion on this has been that they feel unsafe because uh, NATO is, quote-unquote, surrounding them now. If you do look at a, a uh, Russian uh, a map of Russia, you'll see that NATO uh, is only uh, a tiny fraction of the borders with Russia. Uh, and uh, conversely, Russia is definitely surrounding Ukraine at the moment, uh, including both the Russian borders uh, and Belarus uh, as well, uh, not to mention the Black Sea. Uh, so in NATO, uh, as this has been developing, NATO has understood that it wants to make sure it's not uh, seen as belligerent. Uh, so what it decided after the invasion of Crimea in 2014 was to create some battle groups that would be a symbolic representation of the NATO guarantee. Uh, this was specifically in, in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland, wherein NATO put a thousand troops uh, into each of them. Uh, so as you'll appreciate, that's not a lot of troops. We're talking about, uh, uh, on the Ukrainian border right now, 150,000 troops. Um, but the idea was that this is a symbolic uh, move to show that members of the alliance, especially the United States, Canada, uh, Britain, uh, Germany, they are 100% behind those countries who are really on the border with Russia. Um, and that if there was some form of a, an invasion, uh, these are, uh, are countries who will be on the ground already and, uh, as it were, already um, uh, staking their claim to, to defend this country. So it's, uh, I think it's a pretty well-balanced idea. Uh, most people will say, hey, that's nowhere near enough troops. But that's kind of the point. Uh, the point is to make sure that we're not being belligerent, but at the same time, uh, staking our claim that we are here for our alliance. Um, and that's that's a really important point, I think. Okay, so since December, um, Russian President Vladimir Putin has demanded that NATO not extend membership to the Ukraine. Uh, the Ukraine um, is a former part of the Soviet Union's Eastern Bloc that gained independence about 30 years ago when the USSR dissolved at the end of the Cold War. And Putin, like you were mentioning, is supposedly demanding this because according to Russia's oldest news agency, TASS News, the Ukraine crisis is being used as an excuse to expand NATO's presence near Russia's borders and essentially poses a threat to Russian security. So since NATO isn't actually a part, or sorry, since Ukraine isn't actually a part of NATO and hasn't been offered membership before, why is this potential membership being spoken of so often now? Um, what would Ukraine's membership mean for NATO? Well, I think it's important to recognize that uh, membership in NATO is... Uh, it's, the principle of it is that there's an open door policy, uh, certainly for the past uh, number of years, um, and that it is the decision of a particular country whether they want to join or not. Uh, that is part of a country's sovereignty, uh, and the, the whole idea of the alliance is to make more security. 
Um, so when we we're talking about countries who feel insecure, it would make sense that they would want to um, grab on to that uh, security guarantee from NATO. Um, on the other hand, it is a long road, uh, which makes things somewhat more dangerous. When you automatically uh, agree that, uh, you know, uh, uh, President Zelensky, for instance, uh, that, uh, yes, Ukraine, we want NATO membership. Well, it's a long, it's usually a long road, just like EU membership. There's a membership action plan, which includes a, a number of, uh, uh, you know, roadmaps to, to ensure that there is a, a correct um, uh, differentiation between political uh, power and military so that uh, there is actual civilian control of the military, which is a very important principle for the uh, democratic ideals of NATO. Uh, there are also uh, demands upon uh, anti-graft and anti-corruption legislation and laws to assure, to assure NATO allies that this country is uh, serious uh, about uh, making sure that it's got a, a very strong uh, civil component, uh, that it's based on rules and legislation. Uh, and then there are just uh, other civil society aspects that each country has to, uh, to jump through, not, not to mention the modernization of the military. They have to be able to show that they can uh, defend not only themselves, but their fellow members too. So there are a lot of boxes that have to be ticked. And uh, Ukraine has certainly gotten on the way uh, to uh, filling in these boxes, and, and Canada has been a big supporter of it, by the way, at NATO HQ. But it's all, almost certainly years away, if not, you know, a decade. So, really, what we're trying to do here is to preserve the idea that sovereign nations can decide what they're going to do uh, with their own fate, which I think is a is a pretty important principle. And uh, really, when it comes to now Ukraine's current position, it is being threatened by 150,000 troops. That is, I don't think anybody would say that those are uh, insignificant numbers. Uh, and, and what we're trying to do now, of course, is to walk that tightrope, um, wherein we are both dedicating ourselves to protecting a sovereign nation, whether or not they're a member of NATO, uh, just as an idea that we no longer uh, change borders through force. That's something that we are, are really trying to get away from. Uh, and that we want to support our, our friends uh, who have been allies in, in many other ways, uh, through training exercises, uh, through uh, different trade and uh, technological exchanges. Uh, it's, it's, it's a country that has very much decided it wants to be uh, closer knit to the rest of Europe. So uh, uh, for those reasons, a lot, a lot of NATO members and NATO itself are wanting to make sure it's as robust as it can be. Uh, Canada has just uh, increased its loan to Ukraine to uh, 500 million. Uh, we are now dedicating ourselves to sending arms uh, to the country, which uh, uh, didn't happen until this week. Uh, and we are just one country. There are many countries doing similar actions. So um, it's, it's a tough balance, though, staying on that balance between belligerence and protection. Uh, what is reasonable? That's what we're trying to thread that needle right now, to make sure that we can do everything to protect Ukraine short of being belligerent. It's it's very, very tough road to hoe. Yeah, I can see why you would uh, say that. I, it's um, very informative to get your take on the the situation and, and why Ukraine yeah, isn't a member but is still being protected. I think that's a, a really important distinction or distinction to make. 
Um, so along with demanding that NATO uh, not offer membership to the Ukraine, Putin has also demanded in his proposed treaty with the U.S. and agreement with NATO in December that NATO needs to stop expanding into Eastern Europe, especially into former Soviet countries, and has to roll back its military deployments in Central and Eastern Europe that you were mentioning that have been ongoing since the 2014 annexation of Crimea. So some commentators are speculating that these demands are Putin's way of testing the alliance's resolve and willingness to protect European sovereignty. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, you've got to think of it this way. Um, testing is a constant um, challenge of any organization, uh, especially one like NATO, whose role, although through its treaty, has, has remained unchanged. Um, the, the different facts on the ground around uh, the NATO area of operations, so the North Atlantic, so many things have changed since 1949, as you'll appreciate, yeah. that it constantly has to uh, adapt and be resilient. And that is one of NATO's uh, main points right now is to, to increase its ability to be resilient because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. The one thing we do know is that the alliance works. Um, so Mr. Putin might try to test it in many different ways. Uh, NATO and the rest of the uh, members of the alliance individually have been wargaming this out. Uh, what happens if there is a nuclear explosion uh, you know, within Russia and they say that it was a, an attack from NATO or from uh, Ukraine? Uh, what if there is a, uh, uh, something that happens on the Black Sea and there's a, a Russian ship that's sunk? And uh, the Russians claim and have video that they've doctored uh, that it was a Ukrainian ship or, or something of that nature. There are so many different permutations of, uh, of an action that could cause confusion, uncertainty in the international community, and that Mr. Putin would be able to then take advantage of that and claim that he's protecting his, uh, quote unquote, Russian citizens within Ukraine or Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, for that matter. Um, there are many different permutations, but the key is that NATO has remained rock solid. Um, not all of the members agree on everything all the time. There's always a lot of uh, back and forth uh, negotiation, but that is the nature of the alliance. It works through something called consensus, which means everybody in the room has to agree on a particular course of action. Uh, if you've ever had to split a bill between eight people, you know how difficult that is. Um, imagine that dealing with international uh, issues of moment. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real, real challenge. But I think that the, the key here is that NATO works uh, and that this crisis, no matter what the outcome is, has shown that. Uh, Mr. Putin may have wanted to divide the alliance, because that is its great weakness, its ability to be divided. Uh, but instead, certainly at the, the moment, it is more united than I've seen it in a long time. Uh, and, and that is the key. Uh, NATO is a tool that can be used to uh, combat just about anything. Any person that's against NATO, uh, it suddenly brings it together. So that's, uh, that's why if there's a zombie apocalypse, if there is an alien invasion, uh, if an AI uh, army comes to get us, NATO is one of the tools that can work on that. It doesn't matter who the enemy is. It matters who the alliance is. And right now, the alliance is steady. Amazing. Well, 
I could keep talking about this all day, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's episode. But thank you so much, Robert, for joining us and providing your insight into NATO's role in the Ukraine crisis, as well as just generally um, in the world. A real pleasure. Thanks so much. As always, subscribe or follow The Voice Above on Spotify or Apple Music to get a notification when our third episode airs in mid-March. Thanks for tuning in.